0: Hello and welcome to Fangraphs Audio episode 891. On this edition of the podcast, we welcome a number of guests to the show. David Lorilla is joined by Cardinals left-hander Andrew Miller to talk about his career, the playoffs, and his future. I
1: think I can manage to pitch with a lower velocity. My fastball velocity was never why I thought I was successful when I was going really well. And I think it was more about, you know, my breaking ball has kind of been my primary pitch. I use my Fastball almost as a secondary pitch.
0: Following that, Eric Langenhagen is joined by photographer Bill Mitchell. Eric and Bill are very familiar with Fall Instructional League in Arizona, and they know trying to get a look at prospects there this year may be a bit different.
2: I can put on khaki pants and a golf shirt, and people just assume I'm a scout. Like, no one knows what I look like. They don't know that I'm a fangraphs writer. And you have
3: that scout look, Eric. <laughs> you have the hair for it.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you.
0: Finally, Dan Zamborski is joined by Josh Nelson and Jim Margulis of SoxMachine.com to talk about the 2020 Chicago White Sox. The Southsiders were exciting this season, but you may have to forgive fans if they're still a bit cynical.
4: And if something were to happen to Luis Robert... That's, that's scary. That's a scary, scary thought. Well,
0: it, we're used to it. All of that coming up. But first, Jay Jaffe leads us off with some words to honor the late, great Bob Gibson. Enjoy the show.
5: Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. A week ago, on October 2nd, just as the Cardinals were being eliminated by the Padres, the baseball world lost Bob Gibson to pancreatic cancer, which he'd been battling for over a year. Gibson is the fourth Hall of Famer we've lost this year, after Al Kaline, Tom Seaver, and his former teammate Lou Brock. Given the timing, I thought it would be good to devote a brief installment of this Cooperstown Casebook Corner to him. Though he stood only 6'1 and 190 pounds, Gibson was a larger-than-life figure. Thanks to his long and loose limbs, he got tremendous extension on the ball, which made it seem like he was charging the batter and caused his 95-mile-an-hour fastball and 90-ish slider to play up. Born into poverty and steeled by the racism and bigotry he encountered, he cultivated an ornery persona, particularly on the days that he pitched, and became legendary for his willingness to knock hitters down. As he said in his 1992 autobiography, Stranger to the Game, I actually used about nine pitches, two different fastballs, two sliders, a curve, a change-up knock down, brush back, and hit batsmen. Gibson worked to control the inside of the plate, mainly because it protected him from batters trying to control the outside of the plate. He didn't hit nearly as many as you'd think, just 84 in his career, but he's the yardstick by which we measure the notion of old school country hardball. Dig in at the plate or do something to show me up and you're going on your ass. What I think those characterizations miss is Gibson's intelligence, warmth, and an inner confidence that came off his outrageousness such as when he told reporters after striking out 17 Tigers in the 1968 World Series opener, I'm never surprised by anything I do. That simply wasn't the way that black athletes talked to the media in 1968. In my piece, for Fangraphs, I cited Roger Angel's 1980 New Yorker profile, Bob Gibson Keeps His Distance, which may be the best thing the Angel ever wrote. That statement, and the reaction that it generated from the all-white media at the time, is the axis upon which the piece turns bob gibson however was not projecting an image but telling us a fact about himself wrote angel beyond its descriptions of gibson's pitching style and the impressions of teammates such as tim mccarver and joe tory and rivals such as danny mclean angel managed to gain gibson's trust over the course of spending a few days with him in omaha he paints a richly detailed portrait of the man at a time that he was still getting used to life without baseball and awaiting election to the hall of fame that would come a year later as would his return to the game as tory's pitching coach first for the Mets and then the Braves, whom he helped coach to a division title in 1982. In some ways, Gibson was a pitcher who was beyond the numbers. He didn't win 300 games, he didn't compile the kind of staggering career totals that a handful of pitchers such as Seaver, Nolan Ryan, and his former teammate Steve Carlton did by pitching well into their 40s. Because he was pitching at a time that the likes of Don Drysdale, Sandy Koufax, Warren Marichal, and Warren Spahn were at the height of their respective games, He only led the league in the pitching triple crown categories, wins, ERA, and strikeouts once apiece, but he placed in the top five in those categories a honking 23 times. On the other hand, he was the second pitcher to 3,000 strikeouts after Walter Johnson, and while there were a bunch of 300 game winners who joined the club as well, the fact that Gibson got there first while Drysdale, Koufax, and Marischal did not tells us something about his style and his standing in the era. More than 45 years since he threw his last pitch, he's still 14th in strikeouts. He's also 14th in Jaws. 6th among post-World War II pitchers in that category behind Roger Clemens, Tom Seaver, Greg Maddox, Randy Johnson, and Spahn, and 3rd among the post-war category in 7-year peak score behind only Johnson and Clemens. That's something. No discussion of Gibson's numbers would be complete without citing the 112 ERA he put up in 1968, the so-called year of the pitcher. That year, teams scored just 3.42 runs per game and hit for a two hundred thirty seven batting average, the lowest of the 20th century. Gibson was utterly dominant that season, completing 28 out of 34 games, throwing 13 shutouts, and striking out a league-high 268 batters in 304 and two-thirds innings. That one ERA was and still is the lowest in the majors since 1914. The remarkable thing is that while he won 22 games that year, he also lost 9. In those games, the Cardinals were shut out three times, scored one run twice, and scored a total of 12 runs in all. His ERA in those losses was 2.14, which would have been good for sixth in the league. In the wins, it was 0.57. You'd need a microscope to find that one. One interesting thing I found when researching that season is that you could extend the window of Gibson's sheer dominance even further. You might recall that he missed nearly eight weeks with a broken fibula in 1967 when he was struck on the right shin by a Roberto Clemente line drive, and even tried to pitch through it before the bone gave way. From the point of his return on September 7th, through the World Series that year, His best of his three World Series, in which he allowed just three runs in 27 innings against the Red Sox and won all three of his starts. And then the 1968 regular season in the World Series, when he allowed five runs in 27 innings. What you get when you add that all up is a 394-inning stretch, 90 more innings than just the 1968 season, with a 1.14 ERA, a 23.8% strikeout rate, and a 5.2% walk rate. Batters hit for a 184 average with a 228 on base percentage and 238 slugging percentage in that span, absolutely helpless. That stretch now covers the equivalent of about two full seasons for a major league starter. After the 1968 season, of course, the two leagues agreed to lower the pitching mound from 15 inches to 10 and to tighten the strike zone. Gibson was still bitter about the changes when reporters asked him about it 40 years later jokingly threatening to sue baseball, though he would concede that since he was more reliant on a three-quarters motion and the use of his slider than a curve and an over-the-top motion that he was less affected than some pitchers. As it was, he was never quite that dominant again, though he did win the NL Cy Young Award again in 1970 and was an All-Star one final time in 1972, his age 36 season. Anyway, there's always a lot written about any Hall of Famer when he passes away, I enjoyed soaking up what I read after Gibson passed away, particularly that Angel piece, and I hope listeners here will check out my own tribute at Fangraphs. That's it for this segment. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe.
6: This is David Lorla. I'm joined in this segment by St. Louis Cardinals left-hander Andrew Miller.
1: Andrew, how are you? I'm doing all right, all things considered. I uh, I wish I was still playing ball, but It's been a tough year and a tough season in some ways, but all in all, I've got my health and uh, home with my family now and, you know, be able to remember this as a a once-in-a-lifetime experience this year.
6: Right. One that we hope that we never live through again, certainly. Although we did have a baseball season and we still have a baseball season, we're talking on Thursday afternoon, so there's actually a a playoff game on my television right now. I don't know if you're really doing much watching since uh, you were eliminated. No, not really. And that's pretty much the way I am every year.
1: When you lose, it's just kind of a a tough thing. You don't really want to look at baseball immediately. I would say there's a decent chance if, you know, depending on who's in the world series or maybe who's starting a game, particularly, you know, people that I'm essentially friends with and and want to pull for, I'll I'll check in on and bits and pieces and then, I'll see headlines, and my son pulls up the highlights, or he's always got it on TV. So I look over his shoulder and see what he's watching and catch up that way. But yeah, I'm not watching every inning, and you know, sitting on the edge of my seat. I I've, baseball ended for me, and I need a little bit of a break.
6: You have been in the postseason, I believe, seven times now. Is it even possible to compare this playoff series to the others you've been in? Not really. This is pretty unique
1: in a lot of ways, and I think some ways it's good, and other ways I think we're missing out on what makes playoff baseball special, but. It's 2020. We have to adapt. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we have a, we've had a baseball season and we're having a playoffs right now, which to me is a great thing. And we have to embrace it. it's a little bit different. So I miss the fans. I think there's nothing that's you know, more you know, exciting than the fans in a playoff game and playing in front of that home crowd or quieting the crowd as the road team and things like that. We just don't have this year. You kind of have that white noise crowd in the background and they've done a good job, but it's just not the same.
6: What do you think about this whole format with 16 teams and 3 game series? I think parts of it I
1: like. It's really interesting to watch and you know I mentioned I'm not watching that closely, but how teams navigate whether it's 3 games in a row, which is what I saw, or, you know, a 5 game in a row series, which is what we see right now and you know I look back to what we did in in 2016 in Cleveland and it would have been much more of an uphill battle for us. We leaned so hard on Corey Kluber that year that he basically pitched on short rest the entire postseason. You couldn't do that this year and have the same amount of innings go to one particular pitcher the way we did. So in some ways, I think it's kind of neat to watch managers have to navigate it. You know, baseball's evolved to more and more relievers. So how do you, you know, if you pull your starter in the second or third of game two, what are you going to look like in game four and five? So that's kind of fun. Uh, 16 teams seems like a little much to me. I hate the fact that maybe a team with a losing record gets in, which we saw this year. That to me is not, you know, you don't, shouldn't get rewarded for that.
6: Right. And with the three game series and relievers, you got, you know, the Cardinals, I should say, got shut down by nine relievers in a bullpen game, which is obviously very unique.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if I were a betting person, I would, not bet on nine guys going in there and having good days and they did and you, you tip your cap to them they pitch their tails off and those guys they they pitched incredibly well in game one and two as well so they were all in a sense you'd think running on fumes and they went out there and it's a credit to their coaches and putting them in in the right spot but just those guys being able to go out and do it to me was you know when we lost game two I thought we were in great shape we had Jack Flaherty on the mound we knew their bullpen was toast and they didn't have a starting pitcher. Well. They kind of proved us wrong, and you know that's that's what it takes to win, and, and they did the job.
6: So you lost to a team that has some injured starters, some strong bullpen arms, and arguably the most exciting young player in baseball.
1: Yeah, they're a, they're a good team, and they'd be even better with you know I know Clevenger personally, and you know got to play with him and see him a good bit in the off working out and whatnot. And he's going to make anybody better, and that's a shame he's not able to go. And I know he he got out there and what pitched into the second inning the other day. I think their chances to hold up the trophy, then it would be a lot better with him. I've not seen the, they have a rookie pitcher. Who's Is he a rookie? Uh, Denilson may win the Cy Young, and I'm sure they're missing him too. So at the same time, things happen. You got to find a way to, to overcome it. And their lineup's a pretty good place to start. And you know, you mentioned, I, I'm assuming you're talking about Tatis. You know, it's a, a pretty good guy to put their smack dab in the middle. And yeah, absolutely exciting is one way to describe him, that's for sure.
6: When I was in uh, San Diego last year for five or six games, I commented to somebody when I came home that you can tell how good a baseball player is on television. But there are certain guys, when you see them live, that there's a lot more of a wall wow factor and Tatis was exactly that. Can you see that on the field, look at a guy play and just see the brilliance? I think so. You can see the way guys carry themselves and
1: the plays they make. Maybe on TV, you don't have an appreciation, particularly on defense, how far a guy maybe ranges or, you know, how much velocity he can throw on the ball thrown across the infield. And obviously he's got every tool in the books and, you know, they're through the roof and it's uh, certainly, I would absolutely agree with that, that when you see him in person, when you see him step into the box, that it's even more impressive.
6: So I assume you are hoping we do not see 16 teams in the playoffs next year. What are you hoping to see as far as things like seven inning double headers, three batter minimums, runners on second base and extra innings?
1: Yeah, you know, personally, I have a lot of opinions on these things. I don't know that necessarily what I think is really what matters. But I think this year was a great year to test some things out and maybe see how they work out so that whether we get them done for next year or or I would say in a lot more likely case, these are things that are discussed during the CBA in a couple years, you know, as far as the seven inning double headers, they saved us. Uh, we went through the, the shutdown and then had all the double headers to make up. And to be honest with you, as a player, kind of liked them. It, it was a day in which he, he knocked out two games in what seemed like a, a pretty quick amount of time. And I think the quality of play was good. There was a little bit of different managing. Sometimes maybe a, a full start looked like four innings because you could go to the back end of your bullpen. Or, you know, uh, it was nice to get a complete game. I think uh, Wainwright did it at least once, if not more, pitched really late into the games and, and, and did a good job for us. So. For us, I think, uh, I don't know what the rest of the league thinks, but they kind of saved our, you know, you know what's, and, and they were something that I didn't think were too bad. So I enjoyed that part. What else was it? So we had the extra inning rule. We didn't see much of it. So my opinion of it, I didn't really see anything that would turn me off to it. It seemed like a way to finish the games up. It seemed exciting. My impression I got from teams around the league is that it, it wasn't maybe as blasphemous as they thought initially. And Obviously, we won't, wouldn't use it in the playoffs, but it seemed like a good solution, whether or not it sticks or is something we permanently add. I think that'll be really interesting. Three batter minimum, I'm not a fan of, and it's not because I don't think I can get right handers out, or I think that you know the game couldn't be sped up. I don't think that we've necessarily seen a speed up from it. I just think that part of the chess match of you know, a manager going to his bullpen and, you know, using those guys in the right spot, particularly whether it's a playoff game or, you know, part of a playoff race is one of the, you know, highlights of the strategy of our game. And you kind of take that away in some sense and and see, you know, you have to stick to your best guys longer instead of trying to see if you can get maybe that left on left matchup or, you know, your guy that's more of a specialist, but I think we'll all get used to it. I don't think it's some sort of drastic change that ruins the game or anything. It's just something I think we miss. And I can appreciate, you know, in a, a blowout in July, nobody wanting to see, you know, one pitcher facing one batter and then getting pulled and constantly having to warm up. So I can see both sides of that one. I don't think it's something that I would, you know, fight tooth and nail against, but I'm not totally in love with it.
6: Right. With the seven inning double headers, they can be fun. But I think that you being a player rep, you can look forward to the CBA negotiations Of the pushback of seven-inning doubleheaders because day-night doubleheaders would probably not be seven, and there's a lot of money lost there.
1: Absolutely. There's so much more that goes into it. Yeah, we didn't have day-night doubleheaders at all, I believe, this year, certainly in our case. And there's things that you start looking at the, the, the effect that it has down the line, so that's certainly one of them that's innings you're taking away from players. And as far as the player's perspective, that's a chance to whether that's throw an inning or hit a home run or getting it bad or make a play in the field. Those are things that in essence get you paid down the road. So, you know, whether or not even players would be as receptive to it in that case as a permanent addition, I don't know. You got to think through all that stuff before you fully embrace it. And like I said, this year was a great year to test things out and make sure they, you know, they worked or they made sense. You know, I like it in the sense of a a possibility of maybe shortening the length of the season. It's pretty cold in the beginning of April or the end of October or start of November sometimes. And, you know, whether you can create more off days or shorten the season, I think there's a benefit to players. But you have to take into account those other issues.
6: Of course, you just brought up stats. Which we can circle back to the, the extra innings rule. Jason Stark on his podcast recently talked about how Caleb Thielbar, the lefty for the Twins in the last game of the regular season, came in, pitched a one two three ninth inning, came back out for the 10th, retired the only batter he faced, and then got a loss. <laughs> Which, you know, pitcher wins and losses, you take them with a grain of salt, but pitchers do not like to have an L next to their name regardless of how it came.
1: Absolutely. I, I know that, you know, from a statistic standpoint, maybe in the value you added to, you know, your war and all that stuff that wins and losses aren't the most favored stat anymore. But for me, that's the game you're playing to win and lose. There, there's a lot of pride in that. I think, you know, maybe one of the most proud things I have from my 2016 season is I think I went 10 and one or something. That means when I came in those games, I was able to you know either keep us in that position or whatever. And there's a lot of pride, in, you know, having your, your name as the the person that won a major league game. Only, you know, at most 15 people a day get to do that. And at the same time, you don't want to be the one guy on your roster that's name is attached to the loss. So, you know, I can appreciate that. That's a, a pretty interesting outcome for him. Uh, I assume that he essentially inherits that runner on second base and therefore gets the loss, even though he had nothing to do with it. So that stinks.
6: Right. You've brought up the 2016 season twice, which shouldn't be a surprise because it was a great season for you, not only individually, but, but team-wise. You went from the Yankees to the Indians at the trade deadline and, and ended up in the World Series.
1: Yeah, it was incredible. Honest, and to be completely honest with you, when I got the call from Brian Cashman at probably eight o'clock in the morning telling me you traded me to Cleveland, you know, the first instinct isn't necessarily, you know, excitement. It, it was... I liked New York. I, I liked I, there's a reason I signed there. I liked my teammates. I, I believed in what we were doing. But I didn't really have much choice. You gotta roll with it. And I ended up in an incredible place, incredible situation. I you know, my wife and I made friends there that I think will be friends for the rest of our lives. And, you know, we didn't quite win at all, but we got as close as you can get and not do it. And it was just a, an incredible run on an incredible team and just something I'll I'll cherish and high point of my career for sure.
6: I had the pleasure of covering all seven games of that series. And I recall specifically the sound of the the ballpark in Cleveland when Rajay Davis hit that home run. Have you heard anything that loud before in a ballpark?
1: That's up there. I think, you know, we were talking about playoff fans earlier. I think Delman Young had a hit in Baltimore in the 2014 playoffs that was a double down the line that, I mean, Camden Yards, I don't think, has anywhere near the capacity of a lot of places, but that has to be, if not as loud, as close as you can get. And I think that's, you know, that's one of those things that's tough with this season that we've all had to swallow is missing moments like that. But when Rajay hit that ball, that was, uh, I think, you know, the entire state of Ohio just had this incredible reaction. It was a blast to be a part of.
6: And there are a lot of great sports fans in, in Ohio, certainly. The Cardinals have a fabulous fan base and they've lost a couple of icons recently. Do you have any thoughts on Bob Gibson and Lou Brock? You know, I wish I had gotten to know them. I, my understanding is they used
1: to be around a lot and they were, you know, whether it was spring training or opening day and available to, you know, just get a chance to chat with would be incredible. And they had relationships with players on our team. I wish I had gotten to know them better. But as far as players, I mean, you know, they're legends and, and for good reason. You know, we, we changed... You know the the mound because of what Bob Gibson did because he was so good they they changed the rules and regulations, and you know Lou Brock is the first thing you think of when it comes to stolen bases or him and Ricky Henderson, so you know just a a special organization to have people like that and to have them around and you know it, it hurts to lose people like that, but I know they meant a lot to people in that organization and people in that state, that fan base, everything, and you know they'll they'll certainly be missed.
6: No, absolutely. Let's circle back yet, Andrew, to another thing you mentioned. You were talking about wins for pitchers and the value. Every pitcher is going to value strikeouts. That said, can you putting on your fan hat, do you think there are too many strikeouts in baseball right now? Do we have too much three-true outcome for the good of the game?
1: You know, I, I got to be kind of careful, but yeah, in in a way, I think the ball being put in play more frequently is a good thing. And I'm amazed at how good you know, the stuff pitchers feature these days is, I mean, it seems like everybody that comes out of the bullpen throws with, you know, incredible life at incredible velocity. You know, 100 miles an hour doesn't even get the fans excited, it seems like, anymore because you see it all the time. And as far as a solution, how you get back to maybe the ball more in play or what, I don't know, because I, hitting, I was a horrible hitter. I can certainly appreciate how hard it is but to see what guys can do We have a guy on our team, you know, Jordan Hicks can throw 105 miles an hour and it's not straight. It's, it's a sinker ball. So it's a challenge. I think we have to appreciate, you know, being able to see what guys can do and, you know, their, their physical ability, but at the same time, I think, yeah, getting away from the three true outcome, getting, seeing more of uh, maybe moving runners over, putting the balls in play, that type of thing. And, and having those, I think those innings where you have rallies where it's not just the, you know, three-run homer is what you're playing for is something I think would be better for the game and just to keep the attention of of our fans and particularly our young fans.
6: Do you think that we have issues with the baseball? I see a lot of opposite field home runs, you know, going 400 feet from middle infielders.
1: Yeah, I think what, uh, you know, what we used to assume and not even going that far back of where a player could, you know, hit a ball has, has changed a lot in the last couple of years. And, you know, as far as the baseball, I don't know whether the there's a a variation is a a new issue or whether we just have better ways of quantifying it. I think this, you know, the, the cast and, you know, the pitch effects and all these things we've started to build on these last few years, just allow us to actually go out and, you know, see the science of all these things. You know, we didn't used to have that. And I think it's, you know, just made us aware of how much that can impact, you know, the way a game is played or the flight of a ball. I think I saw something last year around the playoffs that, you know, the range of within you know, the, the legal parameters for baseball, the range the ball could travel is something like 50 feet just based on the dimensions of the baseball or the height of the seams and that type of thing. And that's, that's enormous. That's the difference between a ball that's caught before the track and 10 rows up or something. And, and that's a huge difference in, you know, the outcome of the same swing and the same pitch. So how you address it, how you fix it, I don't know. You know, I feel like that's something that would be, you know, you're to get the hitters and pitchers to agree on is going to be a challenge
6: does the baseball feel any different to you in your hands do you get a uh, different movement you know are the seams different i never
1: paid that much attention to it for the longest time and then i think just becoming conscious of it hearing about it hearing guys discuss it in the clubhouse reading about it on places like Fangraphs, i think i started to notice a little bit And i think you know certainly there's times you know i didn't have a great year last year particularly with the home runs and i think it was one of those things to look back on and i can remember the pitches I gave up home runs on a lot of times and think about well not necessarily that the ball traveled further than I expected but you know you mentioned feel and maybe that that breaking ball just I wasn't able to spin it the way I, I expected to or something and I think that's uh whether it's real or not is something that I've at least thought about again as far as the solution you're talking to the wrong guy but it, it's something that I think needs to be you know we need to pay attention to
6: and along with not spinning the ball quite as well, I noticed that you no longer throw 95 miles an hour. How I much is that? How much is that impacting your game? I I think that it's just an
1: unfortunate reality as you get older. I, I wish I still had the velocity that I that I used to. I, I think that a lot of my velocity drop, to be honest with you, though, is mechanical stuff that I still am looking to clean up. And I, I think there's times when I get there, and there's times when I battle. This year was tough in a lot of ways, but I think the the multiple stops and starts are are a lot more difficult on somebody my age than maybe some of the younger guys. So I'm looking forward to, you know, hopefully next year being a, a more straightforward season. But I think I can manage to pitch with a lower velocity. My fastball velocity was never why I thought I was successful when I was going really well. And I think it was more about, you know, my breaking ball has kind of been my primary pitch. I use my fastball almost as a secondary pitch and it's not because I've always had great velocity or great spin or anything like that it's more about using it in the right time and I think when I went on the really good run my fastball command was at the best it ever was and, and that played up a lot for me so for me I'm not that concerned about it. it would be nice to have but it's not I'm not going to the gym this off season thinking about I have to throw two miles an hour harder I'm thinking about what do I do to get my mechanics stronger and better and I think the results will follow that more closely.
6: So two more questions, Andrew. How many more bullets do you have left in the gun? Can we expect to see you pitching for a few more years or are you going to be at home watching games with your son and the rest of your family?
1: I'm not gonna to commit to anything right now. The, the game has been absolutely incredible to me. I'm so lucky that, you know, just the, whether it's the breaks or the timing or whatnot, it's just, I've absolutely beat the system and just been surrounded by great people and I've seen the country and, and met so many great people through the game. But at the same time, I am getting older. My body is not feeling as good as it used to. And I do have, you know, children that are starting to enter school age and missing them for extended periods of time is really difficult. And, you know, we'll see. It's uh, this game, you know, pitching and being successful is one of the greatest, you know, feelings you can possibly have. I can't imagine anything better than being successful and walking off the mound. But at the same time, when you're not successful, it's not a lot of fun. And, you know, for somebody who has been treated so well by this game. I don't know that I want to sit there and get beat up and repeatedly and pitch through you know, injuries and you know, lack of success when I'm missing my family at the same time. So no commitment right now. I definitely think I have some gas left in the tank and you know, we'll see how far I'll deal with it. I would say pretty much on a year-to-year basis at this point.
6: And one last thing we mentioned earlier, the trade deadline deal that sent you to Cleveland. You went from Boston to Baltimore, I believe in twenty fourteen for Eduardo Rodriguez. Eduardo won nineteen games a year ago this year he missed the entire season with coronavirus complications. So let's close with your thoughts on just where we are, you know, both the game and just people in this country trying to survive something
1: yeah, I think uh you know first of all, I hope he's back and is you know every bit as good as he was going to be because that's the scary part of it is that you have this young, healthy athlete that's, you know, literally in his prime. And this virus obviously took away at least this year from him. And, you know, I still have friends over there in the organization and, and have found out a little bit about what's going on and they're optimistic and, you know, gosh, I hope he comes back and and pitches to the level he was last year, if not better. And yeah, it's, it's been a challenge, even during the shutdown, trying to decide whether or not to come back and play. Obviously we had some big name players opt out and, Totally respect that, and to be completely honest, it was something that I discussed with my family, and you know, certainly internally with myself of trying to figure out is this the right thing to do. I think uh, we made it through the regular season much more unscathed than I probably expected to before it started. And that's that's saying something coming from somebody who was in shutdown or quarantine for a couple of weeks in the middle of the season and had half of our team seemingly infected. But yeah, I think it's a it's it's a scary virus, and I'm glad that we're finding more out, but we need to take it seriously is my personal thought. And I I think that we've lost, you know, here in the United States alone, over 200,000 people to this virus that otherwise, you know, you would think would still be around and that's scary and we need to keep working on it. You know, our our medical field here in the United States is incredible and worldwide, trying to come up with vaccines and treatments and all that. And, And we need to embrace that, but that stuff takes time. So just respect for it and, you know, understand that this has affected a lot of people. And and it's something that we have to take seriously or else it's going to really keep beating us up as badly as I want to get back to normal. I don't think we should rush into it.
6: Those are fantastic final thoughts. And, you know, with that, we will close out. Thank you much, Andrew Miller, for your time. This is David Lorela, and we will move on to the next segment.
2: Hello, everybody. This is Lead Prospect Analyst Eric Longenhagen. So it's a later in a, on a weeknight now. We're deep into the to the West Coast LDS games, and uh, also deep into. Well, just starting a time of year that is is typically very eventful for the uh, on the prospect circuit. That is fall instructional league, and that time is here. But it is odd and unique this year for reasons that you can probably guess. And so to discuss it, I've got uh, you know like. There's not another prospect writer on staff and so I I'm bringing on a voice who I hope you'll become familiar with over the course of the next 20 minutes and then semi frequently over the, you know, distant future and that is photographer and Baseball America contributor Bill Mitchell. How's it going, Bill? I'm fine, Eric. How are you? I'm doing pretty well watching Randy Arozarena go nuts and the ball fly out of Dodger Stadium like I've never seen it before. It's been a it's been an interesting week so far. Well, I can't wait to get back to Arizona, I am, like many others, displaced due to COVID-related stuff, even when I get back, it seems unlikely that you and I are going to have an opportunity to get to a field because despite the fact that Fall Instructional League is is underway, the media is not allowed. So we're going to talk a little bit about Instructs as a thing, for those who aren't familiar with it, and we're going to talk about why and how it is different this year and why Bill and I aren't necessarily stoked about that. But first, Bill, why don't you tell folks about your background? What is it that led you to make your living taking photos of ballplayers and contributing over at BA?
3: I've been hanging around the backfields complexes for 20 years. And at some point, I picked up a camera, sold some photos, and it just went from there. And I also was writing for my own website. And then at one point, I started contributing to Baseball America, doing some of their prospect reports, both uh, organization reports and league reports. I also sell photos to other sources. It keeps me busy. I left the corporate world almost going on seven years ago, and I've never looked back from that. Now I can do this full time. It is, as you said, it's kind of frustrating this fall with all this baseball, 15, actually 16 organizations or teams doing instructional league. The Giants have two teams, and we can't get much view of it. And that is a little frustrating.
2: Yeah, so, and Bill's being slightly modest. Like, Bill is the most switched-on conduit of information, perhaps, in all of baseball. When you're, like, a baseball ops person, when you're a coach or a scout, and you tell something to Ken Rosenthal or Jeff Passan, the chances that that gets tweeted and a million people see it, it changes how you communicate with that person. And then, to a certain extent, but a much lesser degree... The same is true of people like me, or Keith Law, or Jim Callis, because if you tell us something, it might show up in an article that fewer than a million people who see a Rosenthal tweet will read. You have to People have to go digging to find it, but when you tell Bill a thing, he just wants to show up and have a comprehensive catalog of photographs, and that's it. And so people tell Bill everything, <laughs> and so then Bill becomes you know the who's rehabbing where when is said player throwing a bullpen or making their debut what is going on in the backfields like you totally undersold yourself (laughs)
3: well because i've been around so long i've gotten to know a lot of the coaches and managers and coaches especially so i get that information because as a photographer generally i'm on the field and i make these relationships with Right. with guys and we can get into it later i haven't been totally blind here in the first week of instructional league i found ways that i can get a little bit of action and see a little bit and it's not quite enough but i, I get my my small pleasures out of it once in a while like today i just stopped somewhere i could see a view of a practice field and a pitcher that i wanted to see came out and was pitching a live batting practice session So right now, I'm just living on those those small pleasures that I get, the small surprises.
2: So typically, Instructs would start, and a lot of the time, it is the younger players. It is the players who just came from the most recent draft class a lot of time. It's the high school guys. And then we also get the cream of the crop up from the DSL, who didn't get promoted to the AZL during the course of the summer, and the big July 2 signees, who signed their first pro contract in July but haven't started playing professionally anywhere yet. A lot of the time, the first place to see a big-time international signee is at Instructional League. And it is different this year. The timing of it is different, and also the roster makeup is much different this season because there were no minor leagues, and the July 2 deadline—or not deadline, but rather the signing day on July 2nd when all the teenage international kids can sign— was pushed until January. So this instructional league is occurring with guys who you typically would have seen in the mid to low minors during the course of the summer. And so the roster makeup is much different this year, and there are different rules related to COVID. But the fact that there were no minor leagues this year has made instructs more robust from like a prospect look standpoint, because as Bill alluded to, we have 15 orgs in Arizona. And there are 16 teams, which, Bill, that's different than it's been the last several years. We've been trending further and further away from all the orgs having teams during Instructs.
3: That's right. Last year, there were only six organizations that played games during Instructional League, plus the Angels, who played a few intra-squad games. The rest would bring in players for different camps. They do work in the cages. They do work in the classrooms, work in the bullpens, but not playing games. So I was really looking forward to this. This was going to be very refreshing to get all the new draft picks in who we didn't get to see in the summer if they came through Arizona League. So we'll make it work one way or the other. But yeah, I I do miss that.
2: So the COVID protocols that are in place, and this came together pretty quickly, and it was kind of loose there right up against the start of October, basically. It was mid to late September when... We were hopping on the phone with scouts and front office folks asking what the hell was going to go on, and their answer was basically, from like a podcast Goss standpoint, is there weren't. it wasn't clear that MLB was going to make anyone really do anything. Some of the teams wanted to know how many players they could bring in and if there were ways that they could structure it so that they could not circumvent those rules, but work within them in a way that was more flexible. Like if MLB said, hey, you can't have any more than 80 players, maybe a team would want to bring in 40 players for instruction for three weeks and then 40 more for the following three weeks so you get to touch 80 players over the course of the fall and especially if you're an org who's not really inclined to play many games anyway which as bill mentioned that's been increasing where they just would rather instruct than play games that the value of games more forward-thinking orgs are starting to they feel it's less they can do more with like rap and stuff like that and i think there's some merit to that and i have a You know, I think it's short-sighted to some degree as well. But I've talked about that, and I don't want to revisit it. But anyway, the other COVID protocols are scouting. If you choose not to allow opposing scouts in your facility, which you can, then you are not allowed to scout opposing facilities. And, you know, like, there were maybe some reasons that teams would choose to do this if you've got a bunch of Rule 5 guys you want to hide, seems unlikely, or... I don't know, like you didn't want to pay scouts to go out and see players in the fall because of budgetary restrictions imposed on you by ownership related to COVID, which we've seen teams do for the draft, right? It's not as though that's implausible. But we learned today, Bill, that one of the teams who we thought was not going to allow scouts, I think the two two orgs who we initially thought were not going to allow scouts in Arizona.
3: Exactly. They
2: are now? Yes. We just heard about the one. Seattle and Colorado, right? Right.
3: Yes, and now we've heard today, as, as of today, that the Mariners are will allow scouts in. I think it was last week we heard Colorado.
2: Right. Colorado's typically pretty cagey with, with any and all things. And so it didn't surprise me when I heard they were on the list that was not going to allow scouts, but they have reversed that. And so now all I know of is Minnesota in Florida has is not allowing scouts at their facility. But otherwise, I think everybody's out doing it. And so basically, the Instructional League is open to the public, but this year with COVID protocols, scouts have to be very forthcoming about when they're going to arrive at the stadium. They have certain procedures in place that involve them showing their ID. And we have basically been told that the media is not allowed, correct?
3: I haven't heard that officially from every organization. I'm still going to follow up on some, but uh, we've got to wait and see.
2: Right, yeah. It's, It's a thing that for me and you, it's different. Bill and I end up going to a lot of games together because we live a mile, a mile from each other in Tempe. And so like we carpool. And when it's time to get into a facility, more often than not, Bill will need a credential because he has to be on the field or someone has to know he's going to be there because he's, he's going to be on the field with a giant camera. Whereas for me, I can put on khaki pants and a golf shirt And people just assume I'm a scout. Like, no one knows what I look like. They don't know that I'm a fangraphs writer. And you have that scout
3: look, Eric. (laughs) You have the hair for it.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you. Anyway, this year is not possible for me to do that, right? Even in areas where I typically wouldn't be allowed, like the Giants Complex, because autograph seekers were hounding Joey Bart, the Giants Complex is very confined. And you're up against the players a lot. Like, they're just right there. And so... There have been some instances where the, the fans just being around is a problem. And on some, at some of those complexes, the restrictions that they've put in place pre-COVID even were like getting to the point where I had to do, I had like to jump through media relations hoops, which like no big deal, right? That I didn't have to before. But now it doesn't seem like I, even if we wanted to, like you or I could do that. So you've been around Arizona all summer and it's not as if the complexes, the spring training complexes, have been dark all summer. What sort of stuff have, has been going on at the the complexes?
3: Starting in May, there have been tournaments, high school age tournaments like Perfect Game. Uh, there's another outfit called Southwest Wood Bat. I can't remember all the everything in it, but there have been a lot of tournaments using the backfields. It's kind of a strange dichotomy. The fact that there are some restrictions and some protocols sometimes on these showcases and High school tournament, but uh, not to the degree they're doing over in the other side of the complex where the Instructional League guys will be. And you know, we're going to face that this weekend because the Arizona Fall Classic is happening in the backfields of Surprise, Peoria, and Goodyear, while on the other half of the same complex there will be Instructional League and it will be supposedly locked down. But all summer we had, you know, the amateur scouts were finally able to get out. I was a little concerned when I first went out. And then really, this is what has carried me through the summer are these amateur events. And I've I've really formed a lot of bonds with the amateur scouts. It's a good group of guys that are the Four Corners area scouts. And I'm kind of like one of them almost now. But when it first started, I was questioning, should I be going to this? You know, we're just right in the, you know, the height of COVID in Arizona, although I never am sure when the height has been or whether we're ever coming down from it. But I always went into it with the attitude that I'll show up, if I'm not comfortable, I'll leave. And I've never had to do that. I just, I wear a mask all the time, even when it's 110 degrees out there, I had my mask on and I would stay away from people who didn't have masks on. And I just never worried about it. I worried about heat stroke sometimes, but I really didn't worry about catching COVID at these events. And, uh, you know, it made my summer.
2: So, you know, a lot of these high school travel ball showcases, you have a bunch of parents, you got siblings of the players and the scouts around, you have college recruiters. It can get kind of packed on the backfield, but it's what you're describing from the amateur events sounds like things were, there were at least some protocols in place where I think I saw at some of the events, like only one parent could accompany the player, like that they did some stuff to diffuse some of like the the density of of people right
3: yes and all the facilities have a quad that they call a quad with four fields and what they were doing is it would usually generally not allow more than two games or two of the of uh, the quad fields being used at a time and if you were coming in for the next session you had to wait for the people and the players from that session to leave until the next session you can come in for the next session so there were some restrictions on it and it worked
2: yeah and it's you know it's a complicated thing to think about and and decide whether or not to go because you know you and i attend a lot of the, the high school showcase stuff all summer long because it's convenient for us and we get to see a ton of players they're a lot of fun And the quality of competition. Like, it's important for many evaluation reasons, but also, you know, it's pay to play in our time of COVID. The travel ball, as I've written about and others have too, you know, travel ball, the system of it is hard on economically disadvantaged youth. And that demographic of person is also struggling at a higher rate from as a result of COVID, right? So it is sort of strange that at these MLB complexes, these third parties, these private companies were essentially renting out MLB space to do a thing that is less safe than having no baseball at all. But based on your experience, generally, you felt pretty safe, especially as a person of, you know, like middle age right? who walks around with the camera oh, a lot. So like you're in probably in better shape than most folks your age. I like that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, so it's tough now that stuff is going on in the backfields where... I understand there have been problems with just people in Arizona behaving themselves in an intelligent way as it relates to COVID anyway, and that the potential for that to get out of control exists, period, and probably to a greater degree when we're talking about people who want to get close to high-profile pro athletes, who we bear some responsibility for providing that profile to, right? Like The reason people want Wander Franco to sign a baseball is because of the hype that in part people like you and I have created. So it is kind of tough to decide what to do. Even if I could go, I mean, I really want to go cause I haven't seen baseball since March, but you know, if you told me that me going meant that people from the public would have to go too, that would feel weird. But if you told me I could go as an exception to the fans, that would kind of feel, I feel bad about that too. So I'm not sure what, you know, strings I might try to pull or what favors I might try to cash in. If it means going to see some of the high profile guys who we have in the desert this year, and I might just spend the next month on the phone more than I typically would. But I know you went to the to one of the places and we're like up on a ridge, up away from the field where you were allowed to be, and we're still zooming in to get photos of whoever you wanted to. So it seems like you might have better alternatives than, than I do this year.
3: I don't know that I have any better alternatives. I was not able to get great photos on the most part, but I was out there. So we'll do it together next week or whenever.
2: The last thing that I will gripe about before I talk about some of the players in the rosters with you, and I don't know if there's anything else about instructional league that we haven't necessarily touched on. I guess the schedules, I have the schedules and they're more concentrated into like little pods than usual where like the four teams in the Southwest Valley are all going to play each other for the most part. And the same goes for the four teams in the Northwest Valley. There is some variability to that, but, but there's a little less bus travel and intermingling of, you know, you're not going to play like eight or nine different other teams this year. It's, it's a little more concentrated than that. But I will say, like, people belong to the BBWAA who cover prospects for a living. And if the Writers Association cannot help to ensure that those people have access to stuff like Instructs so that they can do their job, then I'm not sure why the BBWAA exists. All right, let's talk about some instructionally rosters. We know that the guys who I would have been most interested in seeing during the AZL... It probably would have been in our backyard at the Cubs place where they've got Ronier Quintero, who was one of the big July 2 guys from last year, as well as Kevin Made, a shortstop also from last year's July 2 class. And then the group is like, it's crazy to look at this group because some of these guys are are college prospects. I have their roster pulled up now.
3: Ed Howard. I I, I got a, a distant view of Ed Howard the other day. At least I'm pretty sure it was him because he was wearing a mask. But I think I've seen Ed Howard enough to know that was him taking ground balls at shortstop.
2: The infield group for the Cubs' instructs is loaded. They have, as Bill mentioned, first-round pick Ed Howard. Christopher Morell and his brother Rafael Morell. Rafael was mostly in the DSL last year. Fabian Pertus, another infielder who's kind of small but has, like, sneaky power. And then in addition to some of these guys, Yohendrik Pinango is another guy who's coming up from the DSL who would have been a high priority look for me. And then they have a bunch of college dudes like Alfonso Rivas, who they got in a trade from Oakland who went to U of A. And then we have background seeing Jordan Nwogu from Michigan and Chase Strump from UCLA. Are both, they're all on an instructional league roster. It just would have been unheard of to have had a normal minor league season and see guys like this on an Instructs roster. Is there anybody else, team by team wise, that you can think of off the top of your head that has a particularly loaded roster?
3: Well, San Diego has invited so many players in that they're sometimes playing, they don't officially have two teams, but they're often playing two games in a day. And I know Robert Hassel Third is out there, Justin Lang, the shortstop, Reggie Preciado is there, uh, one of their international guys from last year. Cole Wilcox through the other night, right? Wilcox, I heard he threw the other night. I went there, unfortunately. Yep. But yeah, you know, obviously the Padres with their farm system is going to have a stacked roster.
2: And then you have the groups who the farm systems are bad, and they would have been high priority, like clubs to go see. Milwaukee. I'm talking about like Milwaukee and Oakland mostly, where the farm system is bad, and so therefore this new group of young guys is more likely to have someone who. We collectively as like a prospect covering niche industry should want to know about like, is anyone going to pop up from Milwaukee's camp? And they also have, you know, David Hamilton, who you and I have history with dating back to his high school days on like the Texas area co team. David Hamilton was playing in big league spring training games this year. He still has never played a professional game. This is a guy who had ACL surgery and like missed a bunch of time, but was a relatively advanced college player. Then during his first full spring training was with the big club for some amount of time. And then we just didn't have a minor league season. And so I still don't even think he has a player page on Fangraphs. He was born in 1997. He's now 23 years old. And he's on this Instructional League roster. It's like a high priority look for me just to see if he's, he's a utility guy because we really don't know what David Hamilton is. And then you also have, you know, Edwarkee Fernandez, Hedbert Perez.
3: I was waiting for you to get to him. Of, of all 16 teams, 15 teams, whatever, all the prospects here, Hedbert Perez was my number one priority. And I'm hoping I get a chance to see him at some point.
2: Yeah, over the course of the year, you always seem to have a white whale of sorts where for whatever reason someone is hurt or you're in the wrong place at the wrong time or we don't know of someone pitching somewhere and and end up like playing like our version of tag with that player. Sometimes the players on the AZL rosters will go from one team to the other without us really knowing. And you always seem to have one guy who you're chasing around the desert. And so yeah, now it's Hedbert Perez. Well, we'll have to see if we can rectify that. I was looking for him in spring training.
3: I was out there talking to my the guys that I know in their minor league facility, they said, oh yeah, the uh, the next batch of players coming up from the Dominican Academy will be here on Monday, whatever whatever day it was. And you remember, Eric, when it rained three days in a row in March, and yeah. then around, around that time, Rudy Gobert tested positive and the whole sports world shut down. Yeah, I was probably a day or two away from being able to get out there and see Hedbert Perez. So That one hurt. That one stung a lot.
2: Yeah, well... Hopefully, I don't know. I'd love to be able to sit here and tell you that next minor league spring training will be normal and that we'll just get to go see all these guys and play catch up, but I'm not sure.
3: I'm not sure. uh, I'm not counting on it. I don't know that in three months as a country and having a vaccine or anything that we're going to make enough progress. So we may be in the same situation in spring training.
2: But yeah, I would say that most of what, do you know what orgs you have for the BA handbook this offseason?
3: Yes, uh, Kansas City and Seattle.
2: Okay, so you're back on those two clubs. So you've got a lot of work to do then this fall because the Royals have, like, camps in multiple places, right? Yeah,
3: they have a bunch of guys that stayed in Kansas City, like Bobby Witt and Nick Prado, guys that were, I believe, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's guys that were in on their 60-man player pool working out at, in Kansas City. They stayed in Kansas City for the most part but they still have enough for two teams in Arizona.
2: And then Seattle was going to be tougher on you initially because the way we're going to have to handle this as prospect rankers and analyzers is we're going to have to talk to scouts more this offseason than doing stuff in person, or at least that's true for me to a greater degree than it is for you. But now that the Mariners seem to be allowing scouts, at least you have that. So yeah, I would say that folks can look for Bill's thoughts and findings in the Baseball America handbook, which will hit shelves, I assume, if, if all goes according to plan sometime next February into March, depending on where you order it from. And my stuff will just be in, as usual, the off-season lists that are running on the site. Well, Bill, uh, I think we've, we've crept up over our time just a little bit. So I'm going to hope that the next time we get to do this is in my backyard with a pair of microphones that have longer chords, and we get to check in and, and maybe rehash what some of our off-season or instructional league findings have been. But thanks for coming along with me today, and I look forward to seeing you again in a couple weeks, brother. Thank you. I enjoy doing it. In
7: 2020, the Chicago White Sox made their first playoff appearance since 2008, finishing 35-25 and 25 to tie for second in the AL Central. Their postseason was a quick one, the Sox being eliminated by the Oakland A's in three games. To dissect the team's 2020 season and where they go from here, I'm Dan Zaborski for Fangraphs Audio, and this is the Untitled Dan Zaborski Baseball-Related Segment. Since listening to me talk to myself for 20 minutes would be a dreadful bore, to anyone who isn't me, I'm joined by two guests, Josh Nelson and Jim Margulis from SoxMachine.com. Guys, thanks for joining me on Fangraphs Audio. Absolutely. This is a bit different for me, because usually I'm the
4: one asking you the questions, Dan, so this should be fun. And usually I'm not involved. So I get to be
7: the Game Master. (laughs) 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 But now we're all involved, and we're going to reflect on the season, the happiness and and the sadness. The sadness was the end. But first off, give me your initial feelings on 2020 as a whole, and if you could... Give me those initial feelings on a scale ranging from a vacuum metastability event that causes the total gravitational collapse of the universe to someone inventing a magical taco tree. This is a gym question. <laughs> the taco tree is the good end of the scale. And I hmm. think both the tree and the tacos are magical. Just just so we get that out of the way. I'm going to go with a, a churro farm. It's going to be pretty close to taco tree. can't live
8: on it alone, but it, it does the job You know, for, for a pinch. You know, I've been writing about the team since uh, 2006, and I've seen 2008 was the last time they had made the postseason. They had a couple close-ish calls, but mostly it's just been mediocre teams and teams with no real sustainable way to get to 85-90 wins, aside from fingers crossing and praying. So it was a nice change of pace to have a team that you know, actually overachieved for once and also one that uh, just basically has a path forward even if they had some weaknesses and flaws that they just couldn't overcome this year there's there's a team here there's a core here and uh, they have plenty of ways to add if they have the will and resources to do so
4: i would call him a taco bell no 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 that that sounds bad Well, it's not... We had this argument a lot. I wouldn't say it's bad. Yes, you and I have this argument all the time. But the reason why I would say the 2020 Chicago White Sox are a Taco Bell is that for those that love Taco Bell, the 2020 White Sox were a guilty pleasure for a lot of people that look at the league on a national level. Hey, the White Sox are pretty interesting. They got some young players. Taco Bell
7: has a Doritos taco. That seems pretty interesting. Uh, That's a Tacos Loco. It's not just a taco. It's a taco loco. It's a taco that drives you insane.
4: Yes. And as you continue down that path of Taco Bell and you learn more about it and you have that experience, then you have a different feeling about the Taco Bell. And for those that had the deep dive on the 2020 White Sox, as Jim mentioned, uh, that there is a team here and hopefully that there is a path moving forward but not everything was great for the 2020 Chicago White Sox. While the Doritos Locos Taco is awesome, you also have that nasty bean burrito that plays in right field, and you're not quite sure if it should stay on the menu going to next year. So there are some adjustments that the White Sox have to make, but as you mentioned, Dan, in the 60-game 2020 season, the Chicago White Sox found a way to have a successful campaign, and break the postseason drought. And I still think that they're going to be a interesting team for those on the
7: national level moving into 2021. Now, you compared Nomar Mazzara to a bean burrito. <laughs> Personally, I think the cheesy gordita crunch is the worst item. But Oh, but, my but, gosh. But I, no, that, we're not going to go down this We're path. not going to have this fight about cheesy gordita crunch. That is my beans. favorite menu item. Ugh, but it doesn't even have Doritos Taco Loco in it. It doesn't matter. Just, it's a, okay. It's a great flavor. Okay, well, (laughs) coming into this season, there was a hope that Mazzara would, let's just say, entice the taste buds when he was picked up from Texas, and the the question for Mazzara is when will he have that breakout season? I've been bit many times by Mazzara, picking him for my breakout piece every year, and every year that kind of power you hope to see from Mazzara never really comes to fruition. Never really, He never really develops in that way. And this year, you, you can pretty much say he did it. He had a, a 589 OPS. He only had a single home run in, in 42 games with the White Sox. So my question is... Do we call the Mazzara, let's say, experiment a failure at this point? Should the team move on from him? Should they non-tender him this off season because they can't give him more than a twenty percent pay cut from the five point five six million he made in two thousand twenty? So where do you think they go from here with Mazzara? You know, that's
4: a good question, Dan, and I think it really, it really depends on how this whole arbitration goes down this off season because I think you're going to have teams who are going to say we only played 37% of a season in 2020. You don't, Player X, deserve to have a full season pay increase going to 2021 because we didn't play 162 game a 162-game season. And of course, you're going to have players and agents fight that really hard. If Nomar Mazzara is walking into this offseason wanting 8 or $9 million for the 2021 season, I would wish him luck and... Go pursue free agency. The White Sox can spend that money better elsewhere. But if Mazar is willing to come back for the same cost that he was in 2020, the original scheduled cost, uh, which, as you mentioned, was about $5.5 million to $6 million, maybe the White Sox consider it. And it's a long shot, but they would only bring him back because he's cheap. And for $6 million, it's going to be really hard to find a right fielder that you can throw out there and hope that could play 140 plus games to give you positive production. We've seen this go down for the White Sox multiple times, the John Jay paths, the Austin Jackson paths. They don't go down a very fun road. So in my opinion, maybe Jim disagrees. It really depends on how much no More Mazzara is asking for, and that threshold is eight million. If he's asking for eight plus million, wish him the best of luck. Enjoy free agency.
8: The, the tough thing about the Mazzara acquisition is that the, the the pandemic, the COVID stoppage, basically struck right at the heart of I guess the whole part or, or 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 the the part of the season that I guess was supposed to be the most beneficial for all parties involved. The White Sox got Mazzara. You know, for, for Steel Walker, like the, the, I think the f- trade was fair in terms of its value and they had him for two years of team control and everybody knows that Missouri has a ton of power and thought they could tap into it. And the White Sox are, I guess, the change of scenery for it. But, you know, with the pandemic basically taking 100 games off, the the front 100 games off of a season, that basically took away the trial period. The idea that he could, you know, maybe if he spends the first month, month and a half just hitting balls in the ground, still has maybe a month and a half to try to figure it out before he can, you know, the White Sox decide whether to move on at the trade deadline, try to upgrade it. And, you know, basically all of those three months, the season's only two months long. So he never got like that three month trial period to really know if the White Sox could make the changes that were necessary. And the thing about the White Sox, too, is that, you know, I guess it was a trade that made a lot more sense when the White Sox were rebuilding versus trying to contend. And I think it brings up a lot of bad memories for the White Sox in terms of just being a team that is, like, too clever by half. And you're looking at... A left fielder and right field, the White Sox could have signed Bryce Harper if they just wanted to spend the money and solve that position for five plus years. You know, just you, know, you you never have to worry about getting really a below average performance out of right field as long as Harper is there. They really just showed a passing interest or you know basically checked in on Harper but never really pursued it. So you know next year comes along and they they get Mazzara for you know maybe a quarter of the price, a, a fifth of the price. But also they get like a fifth of the production at most. <laughs> they got a guy who was uh, you know, supposed to kill right-handed pitching. He hit left-handers a bit better. He only hit one homer on the season, hit a bunch of ground balls, was more of a singles hitter than anybody who drove the ball, uh, was decent in right field, not a liability out there, but also not a plus right fielder. So it seemed like they got a player who was the opposite of what they wanted. We've seen the White Sox do this before. like They non-tendered Tyler Flowers and brought in DeAndre Navarro, who did nothing that Flowers could do. And you know, he was supposed to be a guy who hit better than Flowers hit. He hit worse than Flowers hit. Same thing, uh, you know, they have a lot of performances like Jeff Kepinger, Adam Dunn, Alex Rios, who they brought in and just forgot how to play baseball for the first year that they were there or more. So when you see Mazzara just not resemble what Mazzara was supposed to look like, you can't necessarily write it off as like just a weird COVID thing or he had strep throat before the season and so that cost him training camp. You have to say maybe this is just another case of the White Sox being very poor at evaluating talent when they're trying to save money. They
7: just can't shop in the bargain bin. Do you think that do you guys think that the likely non-return of Edwin Encarnacion? Now, I'll speak angrily if you think I'm I'm mistaken there. uh, But he does have a twelve million dollar option for two thousand twenty-one with no buyout, as far as I can recollect. Do you do you think that the lack of Edwin Encarnacion kind of adds to the White Sox feelings about Mazzara, makes them consider, hey, you know, we're gonna have we would have to replace a corner outfielder and a DH in one offseason. That might be a little much. Do you think that these two decisions are interrelated in this way? Ah, oh, maybe. It's possible that they can look at Mazar and say,
8: like, well, even Yeah, you know, it's good having him on the roster as a potential, you know, I <laughs> guess the, the breakout threat for the fifth year in a row. Uh <laughs> just have him on the roster somehow. I guess they could also, like they did with Diane Vicieto, tender him a contract and then cut him, you know, before the season at some point for a fraction of the salary and and you know, especially if they somehow find an upgrade over right field and find a way to justify not to pay him and avoid a grievance that's maybe one option but maybe they just want the power bat there or or i guess the idea of a power bat and if they find an upgrade right field if they sign somebody in free agency if they get like a jock peterson with the left handed bat who actually hits righties better than lefties or if they somehow swing a trade that makes more sense for filling that spot then they can maybe shuffle over mazara to dh and be that left-handed uh, half DH option, especially if he doesn't get that big of a raise over his previous salary. But I think I would prefer to see the White Sox make a wholesale change on both of those positions, just because it seems like, you know, just like you mentioned with Mazzara always being a tease and never quite materializing, it seems like it'd be kind of foolish for them to do it two years in a row to
7: themselves. Now, speaking of Diane Vicieto, they could technically sign him this year. <laughs> I mean, he is still playing in Japan. He still plays for the Chinichi Dragons. Uh, he's not having a great season, but he's had better seasons. So theoretically, we could have the Vicieto reunion. Yeah, I guess uh, that's probably not ideal, but it's fun to imagine.
8: I think Vicieto's basically found his baseball, what he's supposed to be in baseball. Big
7: in Japan, he found his storyline essentially. Yes. Now, if the White Sox were to go shopping for an outfielder in free agency, there are a few names out there that are interesting. Marcelo Zuna, uh, uh, there's George Springer. Uh, those are the two biggest names that come to mind. You also mentioned Jock Peterson. Do you guys have preferences among these outfielders if the White Sox were going to, you know, pursue one of them?
4: And yeah, that's a good question. And we have the off-season plan project coming up on Sox Machine in a couple of weeks, and I'm already kicking. Ideas and coming up with rough drafts. I think there are two players that I think would be intriguing for the White Sox at a let's call it a limited cost because I don't see them breaking the bank and outspending other teams to get a Marcel Azuna or George Springer, even though I think that would be a good direction for the White Sox because both rake and it'd be nice to have another power type bat in this lineup. But I'm really surprised on how well Jackie Bradley Jr. played this season for the Boston Red Sox. And I know the Zips projections are not pretty, Dan, for 2021 and
7: 2022 for Jackie Bradley Jr. Hey, they're not official yet. Anything could happen. I could break the model and, and he could have a 900 projection. Sure. But I think for
4: 8 to $10 million, you could have Jackie Bradley Jr. man right field. And if something were to happen to Luis Robert, that's that's scary. That's a scary, scary thought. Well, we're used to it Uh, (laughs) covering Luis Robert since he's joined the White Sox. It's actually kind of impressive. He did not land on the injured list uh, this season. But again, if something were to happen to Robert, you can have the confidence in moving Jackie Bradley Jr. to center field. And of course, you would still want to have Adam Engel on the roster. So that's one idea. I would be really interested to see if the White Sox added someone like Michael Brantley, who can be halftime, play in a corner outfield spot, probably left field instead of Aloy Jimenez, and also DH. His type of bat, I think, would be really intriguing to bat behind Tim Anderson in the second hole and in front of Jose Abreu and maybe drop Yasmani Grandel into the middle of the lineup. Just because what we saw in this postseason is that the White Sox can do a very good job on getting themselves into scoring position. But time and time and time again, if they're not hitting home runs, it seems like it's a struggle for them to generate runs. And watching that series between the Houston Astros and the Minnesota Twins, who's coming up with the clutch two-run single? It's Michael Brantley. So if you put a DH who is more contact oriented, still has a little bit more pop in Michael Brantley. Does this make the White Sox offense more efficient, especially when you have the sluggers like Abreu and Jimenez and Robert and Makata and even Grandal behind as far as the core in the middle of the lineup? Those are the first two names that I thought of as far as uh, with my rough draft. Obviously, Marcel Zuna or George Springer would be great additions for the White Sox, Dan, but trying to be more realistic and as far as getting to the White Sox wheelhouse on spending and the types of players they like to add, those were the first two players that I thought of was Michael Brantley and Jackie Bradley Jr.
7: Now, if we went back in time to, you know, one year ago at this at this date, October 4, 2019, how surprised would you be? that a year from then, you would make positive references to Adam Engel on the roster. <laughs> well,
8: I think the, the thing with Engel was that last year, he showed a hint of being useful by hitting lefties pretty well, especially in the second half of the season. And, you know, it was a small sample. Engel hadn't really done that before. He'd, he'd, you know, He's made a billion swing tweaks, so you could never take any individual story about any kind of progress he's made that seriously you rooted for the guy because he was 19th round draft pick and you know elite defender and he'd done a lot of work to actually you know get into this position he was in and to be a second division starter and a gold glove finalist but he just couldn't trust any one of his uh swing tweaks and just a very mechanical looking swing never really fluid in the box so he just had to feel like any kind of patch he made could be exploited pretty quickly but he showed a flash of hitting lefties and i think that's been a, a, a sticking point with a lot of white Sox players. Uh, is that they don't really do one thing well. Sometimes, you know, they, they're able to sometimes hit for a decent average, hit for a little bit of power, but they never kill righties and they never kill lefties. They they never have a, a specific use. Angle had like a specific use as a, you know, glove for a center fielder, but as the average sink and the White Sox needed production from a lot of spots, like he was one of the positions that was just, it became untenable and, and really had to upgrade over it. But, As he slid down the depth chart into fourth outfielder, fifth outfielder status, and he could still hit lefties, it was like, hallelujah, just finally there's a reason to put him in the lineup and and feel like he's being put in the lineup for a purpose, not because there's just nobody better to stand in the center field for that given day. So that's, I think, been a very beneficial development. I I think, you know, over the second two games of the series against Oakland, you know, his ability to hit right-handed pitchers became a bit exposed, and Sometimes there's some empty at bats there, but if he can hit lefties, he serves a purpose. And, and that's just a welcome sight for a, a lot of bench players the White Sox have had that just, you know, never pose a threat against pitchers of any hand.
7: Well, as long as we're talking about outfielders, there's, there's one subject that, that people might want to avoid, but we have to address. Luis Roberts, September. <laughs> In September, he had an OPS of 409. One extra base hit for the entire month. Are you guys worried at all that his C ball hit ball approach wasn't paying off the same as it was in August? Not that it would, you know, negatively affect his future in a major way, but do you have that worry in the back of your head now? Well, I have a
4: 487 foot home run that he hit off Mike Fire, such as playing on repeat, Dan, that has deleted my memory of what happened for (laughs) Luis Robert in the months of September. Yes but it's the same type of concern that we had for Tim Anderson. And look where Tim Anderson is now in the last two years. I would say the difference because Tim Anderson was very much like Luis Roberts, see ball, hit ball. I'm not walking. And it's taken a while for Anderson to evolve, but man, he's now one of the best hitters in the American league. He had three straight three hit games in that wild card series against the Oakland athletics. And this is something that Jim and I often talk about. It's like, I don't think I've ever imagined this version of Tim Anderson ever coming to fruition for the Chicago White Sox. Can that happen to Luis Robert? Sure. But I think it would be a different looking type of slash line because there is tremendous power behind Luis Robert. I mean, he can crush pitches and I think he is a legit 30 home run, 30 stolen base type of hitter. I thought, at the beginning of the season, when he was hot, that, okay, this is the White Sox future leadoff hitter. September kind of changed my mind, but if you put him in the sixth or seventh spot in the lineup and you still have five better hitters in front of him, he just makes that White Sox lineup so much better in 2021 and beyond. I I don't think I'm hopeful, Dan, that Luis Robert is going to have a 330 on base percentage next year, but if he hits 270 and he slugs 510, and he hits 30 plus home runs for the White Sox because he plays a full season. I think you got to take that if you're a White Sox fan for 2021.
8: I think I'm a little bit bullish uh, in terms of his on-base percentage, just because he did show the ability to draw walks. I had a running Twitter thread like, oh, he drew X amount of walks faster than I thought. And I kept adding to that thread because he kept drawing a walk like every other day, which doesn't sound like a giant accomplishment, except in in the context of White Sox hitters who sometimes go 100-plus plate appearances before drawing their first walk. It was quite refreshing. September, yeah, I, I think when it comes to the kind of year he had last year in the minors when he was the most talented player in any field he stepped on. Occasionally his discipline would be used against him, but maybe never for more than a game or two at a time. The pitchers just didn't have the consistency staff-wide to be able to exploit certain zones more than, you know, a game at a time. He might strike out three times in a game. It was probably a game that Keith Law saw, but uh, (laughs) uh, yeah, when when Law left the stands, he was dominating every level 30-30 season in the minors. So I think this was probably the first time where he was fully healthy and struggling with pitchers who could routinely do what they were doing to him. Just sliders low and away, fastballs inside, and be able to execute those pitches over and over again. The swing looked like a bit unsure. You know, in August, he was attacking. In September, as the struggles piled up, the swing seemed like a bit slower, like he was afraid of striking out almost, like he just wanted to foul pitches off. He was afraid of sliders, so he's constantly in fend mode, even when he was earlier in the count. And he also made a couple of uncharacteristic mistakes in the outfield too that he didn't see in August. So I I think by the end of September, I think he had more of a game plan, more of an idea of how pitchers were attacking him. And you as Josh mentioned, the 487 foot homer was a result of better balance and and better timing. And I think that I'm hoping that those were the worst struggles he'll face. Uh, You know, you might have a bad week or two where he looks uh, out over his skis, but I think the repetitiveness of the failure and just having that beat his spirits down. I think, you know, as long as he's healthy, a hand injury could flare up and cause different problems for him. But in terms of just uh, how he looked in terms of being planned
7: for and pitched around, I think he has
8: a better idea of how to fend that off.
7: Now, I'm not going to let you guys get away without talking a little bit about game three of that, of the wild Card <laughs> series against the A's. Uh, it, it started with Dane Dunning as, as sort of the opener, a quick hook, to Garrett Crochet and then you know he pulled out with the forearm injury after two strikeouts and every picture on the roster essentially appeared there was this a case where the the decisions got out of Rick Renteria's hands in a way and kind of got out of control or were the White Sox just beat how do you how do you feel about just how this game unfolded well the strategy worked for San Diego
4: I mean, having a pitcher pitch every (laughs) inning, like they had nine pitchers and they were able to shut out St.
8: Louis. Yeah, three mid-inning pitching changes in the first five innings. So right. So
4: I don't think that I think the strategy was fine. Just that you know, after watching how San Diego handled Game Three, and then remembering what happened for the White Sox in Game Three, it 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 really you know what it comes down to me. It comes down to the fact that Carlos Rodon could not get a single out, and (laughs) it was it was a three two game, Dan. And Carlos Rodan, who is a third overall pick from the 2014 Major League Baseball draft. He's got shoulder surgery. He's got Tommy John. And if Eric Loggenhagen was on this podcast, I would tell Hagen Rodon's got a 35 or 40 command. And I don't know what he is moving forward other than a non-tender candidate for the Chicago White Sox. But the fact that Carlos Rodon, a veteran, could not get a single out really threw things out of whack because when he failed and Rick Renteria purposely intentionally walked Chad Pinder to load the bases because he did not want Carlos Rodon to face another hitter uh, speaks a lot of volumes. And then go to a rookie of Matt Foster and then Foster just having his, you know, being a rookie, just the pressure crushed him. That that's when it got out of hand for the White Sox. So looking back at it, Dan, I, I would say that was the breaking point. Is when Rodon could not get a single out after Cody Hoyer.
8: Yeah, when, he was when, he was looking for one guy to calm the game down, and just there there wasn't one guy who could do that. Uh, Bummer, couldn't Hoyer? You know, and Hoyer had been an excellent in September, uh, truly unscored upon, no runs, no inherited runners scored. So he just had, you know, a one bad pitch, a two-run homer. You know, that that's going to happen. and just happen the worst time. But then, you know, Rodon couldn't, Foster couldn't. And so it seems like one of those guys should have been able to, and, and they're all used to short relief work and high leverage situations. They just didn't get it done. I think my criticism of Renteria would be is that he hasn't been the most free-thinking or open-minded when it comes to pitcher roles. And over the course of his managerial career, one of my uh, hobby horses and pounding the table for, just trying the opener. The White Sox have, you know, had rotation shortages throughout his entire career managing the Sox. And it seems like there are, there are times where he just like, you know, he's been trying to get five innings out of a guy like Ross Stetweiler, who really shouldn't be on a major league roster. You know, and, and all the starters who go out there need to go five. That's basically the plan. And he's never had an idea to try an opener. He had one game where Reynaldo Lopez threw three innings because he's coming off an injury, faced the, uh, you know, order basically one and a half times handed off the lineup to the bottom of the order for Gio Gonzalez, who took it in the next three innings. And it was beautiful. It was like never using either either of those pitchers for longer than they had to be out there. And he never tried it again. They got the win from that game, but he never tried it again. So I think if I were to criticize Renteria, I'd say that he just doesn't have a history of using pitchers in an unusual way to where that if, you know, a bullpen game breaks out in a postseason game that maybe the pitchers aren't accustomed to him making that many trips to the mound and being that kind of manager who says like, hey, we're going to wing it. Let's have fun. Yeah, he just always has had a very rigid and firm idea of what a starting pitcher is supposed to do. So to see him improvise in a postseason game for pretty much the first time, he's only done maybe a couple other times before over the course of uh, three years, that just he might not be the kind of guy who can do that. I think he needs to practice more at that to maybe not create a panic, even if the pitchers are handling it well. I think a lot of Chicago sports media didn't. And Frank Thomas and Ozzie again, post-game show, <laughs> they did not. So no, it would be nice for him to establish that kind of reputation to where he can occasionally do that. And maybe that's something he can learn from next
7: season. Uh, now, a quick yes, no. You guys brought up uh, Carlos Rodon. Has he thrown his last pitch with the White Sox? Yes. Yes. I- I'm, I'm a yes, too, on that it's it, it's kind of sad in a way because he was a picture that, that they brought in. It was kind of at the start of the rebuilding process, someone they looked to build around, and it, it never really, you know, it didn't really happen in the end due to various reasons. And it that does make me sad, but I, I do think that this is the end for him. Well, alas and alack, our time is nearing an end. Uh, so I'd like to thank Jim uh, Margalisi Josh Nelson, for joining me on Fangraphs Audio today. You can find their work at SoxMachine.com and at Twitter, you can find Jim at Sox Machine and Josh at Socks Machine underscore Josh. I guess he lost the drawing of lots there. So until next time, I'm Dan Zaborski.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show, consider a review, or a donation, or a Fangraphs membership. Your support helps us do everything we do including a Fangraphs Live show coming up next week. That's right. On Tuesday, October 13th, Ben Clemens and Eric Longenhagen will be doing a live show on the Fangraphs Live Twitch channel as they watch and discuss playoff baseball with guests. Keep an eye on Fangraphs.com for more information as we get ready for the LCS. Until then, thank you for listening.